Hi, I'm Ryan North. I'm Lori Fungi. And I'm Sean Wilson. You're listening to Foster Family Matters, a production of CK Family Services, people united through God to enhance the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of at-risk children and families. Welcome back to Foster Family Matters, CK's Foster Family Matters. Thanks for joining us again today. We're so excited that you have decided to carve out a little bit of your day to listen to us. And if you've been following the show, you know that we're in the middle of a multi-part series. We're doing a summer uh, book club study guide reading thing of uh, The Whole Brain Child. And um, we're excited to be able to bring it to you. Uh, what are we talking about today? Today we're in chapter four. Today we're killing butterflies. Kill the butterflies. Kill the, that sounds dun, so violent. Dun, dun. Why are we killing God's creatures? This is actually get... one of my favorite stories in this book of how she handles this with the, the butterflies. Can we maybe just you know, them. kill a moth or something? Moths are less desirable. Yeah. Aren't they? They eat your clothes. They look. Kind of like butterflies. So. I don't know. Um, disclaimer to PETA. Uh, we are just <laughs> reading the words that someone else wrote. We are in no way advocating the uh, dispatch of any of God's creatures for any reason, period. <laughs> <laughs> so just to recap, for those of you who may be joining, um, I think the recap would be go back and listen to the first two or three episodes, uh, two episodes uh, preceding this one where we did the introduction, talked about left brain, right brain. And then uh, we went into chapter three where we talked about upstairs, downstairs brain. And now today we're talking about kill the butterflies, which it's going to make sense when you read the chapter. It seems a little odd on the front end, but uh, we're talking about integrating memory for growth and healing today. Right, guys? Absolutely. That sounds fantastic, Sean. I like that. Um, hey, I just wanted to start by saying something that um, I, I, I am as fascinated as I am um, by the brain itself. There's a subset of that that has heightened my fascination, and that is memories. Hmm. Um, and I like that they, they talk about two myths about memories that I think are commonly held beliefs in this chapter. And that's one, is that memory is a filing cabinet, and two, that memories are accurate, exact reproductions of events. Memories are like lies we tell ourselves. No, let me try that again. Memories are stories we tell ourselves Excellent. about events that happened right. in the past. Mm. Um, you know, there's some other there's some other work on memories. Uh, you, know, you can read up on that. Then um, Kalk and, and Perry and, and people like that talk about memories. But um, like when you code a memory, and every time you recall it, it's a little bit different. Um, like if I tell a story about about you know there's something from your childhood. And you tell a story one way, but the relationship with one of the people in that story changes either positively or negatively. How you actually recall them in the memory changes positively or negatively. And so how you feel about somebody today informs how you view them in the memory. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Isn't that awesome? The problem with memories, though, is that trauma memories are actually a little bit more on the exact um, reproduction of facts, right? Um, because when you code a memory, when your body is under duress, or as, as, as they might say, in a heightened state of cognitive arousal, um, you actually code it more. You can actually recall that with higher degree of accuracy than you can with just a memory that happened of something nice you did with your grandma. And it's not only just cognitive. It's a, it can be a body memory as well. So it, yeah. you feel... To be fair, though, it's your... It. It, it's coded accurately to your experience of the event, assuming that your event was an accurate experience of what actually occurred. 
I don't know what you just said, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to repeat back <laughs> what I heard you say. So, so let, me, let me try that a different way and see if that answers your question. Um, you remember it the way it happened. And of, obviously, there was an exp, exper, experiential part in how it happened. Yeah. The, right. Then, you remember it the way that you experienced it. That's, that's what I'm Rather than what had happened. I'm, I'm trying to play off of the whole thing. If you've got you know two people discussing an issue, there's your version, my version, and the truth. And Excellent. Right. right. And so what, what you're saying is that, I, that that a trauma event is hard-coded according to your experience of the event. Yeah. And for you, that is, is the truth. That's the truth of what actually happened. It can be, yes. Because I think it's so it, – it penetrates so much of you. Body, soul, mind. Right. Well, and so much, and with the body experiencing, then there's a little bit more news when it comes to trauma. That if you're placed in a situation that triggers the memory of the original trauma, your body will experience it like right. it did the first time. Rapid heart rate, all that stuff, blood right? Pressure. So, so if, a, so if a child was physically abused and they were physically abused in their bedroom, you sending them to their bedroom for them to think about it, not a great idea. Which is why anybody around connected parenting. Um, is opposed to the timeout because right. for, for a myriad of reasons, it's not just the separation of the child from the family. It's not just communicating until you can act right. You can be part of, of who we are and what we're doing. It's because that might be so traumatizing for them to go and sit in their bedroom because they have all these memories of the last time they sat and waited in their bedroom for somebody to come through that door. So that's why I like that they really address the, those myths about memories. Cause I think we all just believe that when we, tell a story about an event that happened in the past, it's recalled with a high degree of accuracy and it may or may not be. That's a great point. There's a, so there's, I have this memory and I was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then we moved uh, what? <laughs> to Albuquerque. She's not from around these And parts. then when I was Wait, five. You're not either. No. Are you the not. only Texan in the room? You officially are. Yes. Okay. You digressed. The rest so, of us got you as fast as I'd like as we to could. apologize to our viewership. I, uh, <laughs> Yeah. You didn't pick so up on when the accents. <laughs> when he asked us to do this, he's like, what? I just thought you were from East Texas. <laughs> Far East. Oh, Texas. wow. When I was five, we moved to, to Dallas. But I have this memory and have always had this memory. And in New Mexico, there's tar that connects the gravel, the, the asphalt to the concrete. So right in front of our house, we got to play outside all day long, and we'd sit on the curb, and on, on the asphalt is tar that connects it. And when it gets really hot, there'd be bubbles that pop up in the tar. And so we would sit and we'd pop the tar bubbles. I mean, they're tiny. They're really, really small. And so it's, I just remember sitting there with my two older sisters, and it's a fond memory. And I can experience it and feel it and almost imagine touching those tar bubbles. Okay, flash forward. I don't know. This was probably... 15 years ago, and I'm sharing this story with my sisters, Jamie and Ryan, and I said, you know when we used to sit outside the house and pop those tar bubbles? And they're like, no, no, you weren't there. And I said, no, I was. She's like, Jamie was like, yeah, you were there, but you were a year and a half maybe. You were maybe 14, 15 months old. There's absolutely no way for you to remember that. But what's interesting is that that story isn't so significant that it would be told in a narrative form to other people. But the fact that I do remember it is kind of curious. And so we'll never know whether or not that's an organic memory of mine or if I just happened to hear that story being shared. Yeah. Right. And then I took it and I made it my own. Um, but I think memory is really important when we look at, number one, when we're looking at kiddos in their past and when we see their behaviors, kind of like what was happening in chapters two and three 
of this book that, as Ryan referenced, the bedroom. This is also big in the bathroom and the shower mm. and bath time and meal times. And just seeing if you can make some associations between potential memories or traumatic memories and the behaviors that you're seeing in your home. So this, this chapter was a little along the lines of that the deck kind of being said in that regard. Um, this, this chapter with the issues surrounding the swimming lessons uh, triggered a memory for me. Yeah. And so, um, and, and then Shauna, you and I spoke about this earlier this week. We were at lunch or something and, and, and somehow drowning came up in the conversation. Um, when I was in the f- for second grade, I almost drowned. And, and had to be um, rescued and, and all those things. So every so when we get a Labor Day, there's all, all the campaigns about, you know, make sure the water safety and make sure you're keeping an eye on the kids in the lake because I think like more people drown on Labor Day weekend than the rest of the year or something crazy like that. Um, and so these people are on the radio and they're talking about water safety. And I remember driving into work one day and just really just like being stressed. Like I called my wife when I got to the office and said, I'm like, I'm like tired from the drive because the whole thing came flooding back mm. to me. And, and it's true what they say, you know, like if you're drowning, um, you don't make a sound. You know, there's other articles, things like drowning the silent killer, because your body, uh, your brain assigns every ounce of energy you have to preserving your life and will not waste any energy on being audible, like you lose your ability to, to speak. Um, and, and, and honestly, um, it was like, it was like a Cub Scout, some kid who had like a life-saving badger who noticed me struggling in this, in this big pool, um, and, and, and jumped in like the lifeguards didn't even notice it. And, and, and I can still remember like him, you know, you lay people in your back and like the water rushing over my face and stuff. And so I just, even just in the word drowning, like my body just kind of tensed up mm. and the whole thing came flooding back. So it was an interesting, you know, starting with, with the kid not wanting to do the swimming lessons as, as, as part of this because because that killed the butterflies. Like even just talking about it now, like I feel unsettled in my stomach. And it was 35 years ago. You need to kill the butterflies. I, I do need to kill the butterflies. How do you kill butterflies? Just speaking of butterflies, let's, let's do that. Let's, uh, let's kill them. <clears throat> hey, Peter? <laughs> Again. People um, for the ethical treatment of butterflies. <laughs> butterflies. Pete, Pete Ma? Pete Ma? Uh, regardless, uh, let's, you know, so not to distract from kind of the flow that you guys are going on, but I, I have a question and I'm hoping that you guys can help me understand in the book. It talks about implicit versus explicit explicit Mm -hmm. and help me understand that. I've read it. I've listened to the audio book and it's a little bit, uh, whatever. The easiest way that I understand it. I literally like went. Put my oh, hand I on the just table. thought oh, that was a totally oh, need a buzzer. I thought you were moment electrocuted. You had. <laughs> Does yours involve a bike? No. Okay, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Ladies, <laughs> mine's first. are quick. Mine is really quick. Implicit memory is um, riding a bike. We all know how to ride a bike. We get on. We don't have to teach ourselves every single time. Explicit is recalling learning the first time you learned to ride a bike. So I can go outside and jump on a bike because it's implicit in my mind. But I can also sit here and think back when I was five or six and what that was like with my training wheels and who was out there with me and who, um, if I fell, if I hurt myself, what house we were living in, what neighborhood that was in, what bike that was. That's a little simple, easy way to, to okay. differentiate. But I'd love to hear Ryan's. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna tell. Um, you know, in the book they talk about neurons that fire together, wire together. I believe that's called the Hebbian principle after Canadian neurophysicist. That's right, there are Canadian neurophysicists, uh, Jacob Hebb. And so when you experience things, neurons will fire together and neurons that fire wire together. So 
one of the easiest way, the way that I kind of explain that usually is like, so you'll get up Sunday morning and go to church or on Monday morning and come here. And there'll be days when you pull into the parking lot and you don't remember how you got here. Right. Right. That's, 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 that principle. Like autopilot. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like autopilot. That's that it's principle your routine. It becomes such a routine that you don't need to use cognitive awareness to make, to make it happen. And that's implicit or explicit? That's implicit. That's implicit. Yeah. So that's the, the autopilot thing, right? Your, your brain is taking care of business without you being consciously aware of it because you've done it so many times. Breathing. Yeah. Um, no, that's actually different. That's actually a, a function, function of the recesses of your mind. Is it? <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Yeah, the survival part of your it's brain. It's part of the brainstem. Yeah, it's the brainstem regulates regulates those functions because uh, one of my favorite ways that was explained was breathing is far too critical of a function to be left to your conscious to mind. To think about it, absolutely. Because you do nothing. I think about if you had to beat your heart by thinking about it. Explicit is one of those things that uh, it, you just uh, autopilot muscle yeah. memory. No, that's implicit. That's implicit. Implicit. Ah, implicit so is so you coming me. to work every day. The okay. explicit is remembering and recalling your interview on the first day coming to work. Mm. Okay. You're like, I think the, the fact that they use a diaper changing story in the book, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have gone poopy diaper, but, you know, unto each his own. They do have several books published, and so I'm just going to defer to them. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning the diaper changes the 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 implicit because it com- becomes a routine. Yeah, it's routine, right? right. It's, it's like it's like um, it's like if you play golf or tennis, um, there there are just like a, you know there are just like a hundred things you have to remember before you hit a golf ball, and if you do it enough times, um, you can just do it without thinking through the process. So we use things like autopilot, muscle memory. Those are terms in the common vernacular that we use for these things, but that's all. Those are all examples of implicit memory. Gotcha. Okay. How do we do in explaining that? Clear as mud. I'm still a little confused, but I don't, I don't know that it's all that necessarily important that I understand it intricately, but I would like to talk about some strategies. Okay. Next question. Let's do that. Um, so the strategies that are listed in this one are use the remote of the mind, mm-hmm. replaying memories. Uh, let's talk about that first. What uh, I'm, I'm assuming what we're talking about here is um, helping people deal with current issues based on previous experiences or what, what, what are we talking about here? What is using the remote of the mind to replay memories? I think it's <clears throat> allowing yourself a little bit of freedom and permission of how you're going to replay those memories. And yet the most important aspect is that you're just doing that replaying the memories. So you are, I, I kind of envision this overarching umbrella of storytelling. And so both strategies really go into how are we telling our story? Um, how much information are we putting in? How much are we leaving out? Especially kiddos from a tough background, anybody that's experienced anything traumatic in their past, if they haven't made sense of it, the best way of making sense of it is to talk about it. But if you haven't made sense of it, talking about it's going to be really difficult. And so we find ourselves avoiding some of the harder aspects of that story. So we take a traumatic event, and if we retell it, some kiddos will be like, no, it it was just over. It just happened, and everything's fine. And it stays trapped in the body, right? So as parents, our our hope and our goal is to help kiddos make sense of what happened to them and to share it in a way that they we honor that they experienced it and give them the tools to move on from it. 
And so with the remote, you get to stop, pause, take a break, not get overwhelmed by the emotions that it's evoking in you. Collect yourself because once you start to feel those emotions, you're going to go into that downstairs brain, right? And so we need to allow the body to process that. Hit play again once we know that that cognitive level is back to the upstairs brain so that we can hit play. If we need to fast forward from the traumatic event, we get to the end because for the most part, come the end, the result is you're here, you're safe, you're okay. And so we know that the the end result is a good thing. So we help make those connections of whatever it was, the end result is that you're here, you're safe, and you're fine. Now, once you're calm and we're together and it's right brain to right brain, we're engaged, we're connected, let's together go hit rewind and go through that traumatic experience together. That makes a lot of sense to me. So the, the remote control thing is a, is a way to visualize that process of mm-hmm. start telling the story, but tell it to the extent that you, you maintain kind of, um, I'm going to say control sure. of, of yourself and your state, right? And yeah. feel free to pause and rewind again and replay and, and, and increment it up as, as necessary to get through the story Yeah. with, with the goal being tell the story so that, because I guess as we hearken back to the intro of this, name it to tame it. That's right. Right. What's and and I've heard heard it said before. You know what's shareable is bearable. Mm. Uh, those those sorts of things like that, right? Absolutely. That's why that that narrative is so powerful, right? Because um, oh my gosh, I was just th- thinking of, of an example. Uh, so, but while while I still try to figure out the example, I was thinking of. So, if we have these these things stored back there in in, in the emotional parts of our brain. Um, in order to process them and get them, it's that downstairs upstairs thing again, right? It, it's by it's by putting words to those thoughts and feelings that you're actually able to bring this to the part of your mind where you can make sense of it. It's because if you leave it in the recesses, you can't process it. And if yeah. you don't name it, it stays in the right side, and you just emotionalize. Yeah, it. and so it's because we experience our feelings, right? Um, and so that's why the, 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 there's so much power in storytelling. Um, because it is, it, it, it's why we've, we have all these modalities of therapy, but talk therapy has been around for, I don't know, 200 years or something, and it hasn't lost any steam yet because it just works, you know? And so, um, you know, th- there are these other therapies that, 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 that will, um, for lack of a better term, will help you go back there and get the stuff um, and help you bring it upstairs and to the left side of your brain there so you can really talk about it and process it. And if you can't give, put words to your feelings, there's a real, real um, struggle in actually processing them and making sense of them because for too long people have thought that if we can just repress, you know, deny, pretend, all of those things, dismiss, um, you know, there's a thing that we've all heard, you just need to get over it. Well, that's actually not a prescription for any healing because you don't get over it. Um, you don't. You you make sense of it, right? And the only way to make sense of it, um, not the only way, but but the, the a big way that that I've been able to make sense of things, and I think the two of you would agree, um, is to be able to 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 have somebody help you go back there and fetch it and talk about it because they do become less scary that way. You know, I used to have a horrible fear of flying. Um, but figuring out what that was rooted in almost dying on an airplane as a child because I choked and talking about that and why that was scary to me uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, and then, and then, you know, you know, I was flying on Saturday and it felt like somebody was actually grabbing the airplane and shaking it at no point that I have an actual cardiac event. And I thought, and I thought of my, I said to my wife, when I got home, if that was me five years ago, I'm pretty sure I'd have had a heart attack and a stroke on that airplane. <laughs> 
but our ability to 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 deal with our present situation um, is determined a lot by our uh, our processing of the past, right? Also, our ability to deal with the present situation that might be triggered by the child we're parenting has a lot to do with our ability to, to process um, the past, or our not our ability, but how much of it we've made sense of. So, how does going back to what you started with? about, um, and, and I, I realize you kind of qualified it a little bit by saying that trauma memories are encoded a little differently than, than traditional memories. But, um, is how, how much of that storytelling process is, is any of that storytelling process about helping the person clarify and research their experience to see if it's even, uh, how do I want to ask this? So if I have a, if I have an experience that is troublesome to me, I've, I've, I've come across situations and I won't share the details of them, but I've come across situations in my own life where I've maybe held a grudge where, uh, there was a traumatic experience that I had and I viewed it in a certain way in my memory of it though, in, in decades later processing through it with the other participants of that same event, we have completely different memories of that exact same stimuli. And so is any, is any of this process that we're talking about from the book today about gaining peace through like a shared understanding of the same event? Like, is that any of this or is that a different topic altogether? You mean including the other participants or including anybody else from that memory into it? Well, yeah, or I guess, because I think what I, where my mind goes when I start trying to think of like helping a person through a traumatic event like my children, for example, like if my children had experienced a traumatic event and I'm trying to help them come to terms with that event, I think my, my initial thought is their memory is, I'm going to say accurate, but it's, but their memory, as we discussed before, is their encoded version of what the actual event was. And, and exactly for, to them. for them, yeah. that's probably all that matters initially, but I, it makes me wonder if there isn't some value in uh, educating their memory of the event based on if there are other folks that were there too. So I'm thinking of like maybe siblings that were together in the same traumatic household. And you have one child who came away with one experience and another child who came away with another. Can I ask you a question to see if I understand what you're asking? Yeah. Are you saying that the actual processing of the event, can that be done by yourself or does it have to be done with the people who experienced it together? Or are you asking the, the benefit or the outcome more along the lines of, are we doing this so that we can have a collective resolution of the memory or everybody feels accurate in the memory or feels at peace about the situation because they're all contributing? Yeah, I don't think I'm asking either. I think I'm, I'm wondering if there's... <laughs> I'm wondering. You're both wrong. To be fair, you're both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, I, I, I think I'm wondering, and it may just be uh, nonsensical, and, and I, I apologize no, to I, the half of you who have stopped the podcast at this point. I have a response, I think, but keep well, going. I want to hear your response, but let me clarify real quick. What I'm asking is, is, uh, is, is this process, is a storytelling process, and this may be stepping beyond the scope of this actual chapter, but the importance of the storytelling, is it important that that what's being processed is is based on the actual event or it, is it only important that we deal with the person's experience of the event? I got you. And I think my response to that, not I think, my response to that is it's, it's what is the memory doing? What is the event doing to that person? 
because the examples in the book and the examples in my life and, and the ones that have Ryan has has presented between almost drowning and then almost choking on the plane, it, it has created um, or allowed Ryan to get stuck in a certain situation in so much that that fear now allows our kids to get stuck. They feel stuck. I, the kiddo in the book, I don't want to go to swimming lessons because of this memory. Ryan not wanting to get on another flight or having cardiac arrest five years ago caused him to get stuck in the fear of what happened when he was a child. So I think ultimately the importance of processing is to help people get unstuck from the fear, to release themselves from the fear and to reorganize, you're okay, you survived and you may have even thrived through it, you're going to be okay the next time something like this happens. So, um, you know, talking about the, the swimming story, um, here, here's why making sense of and processing and getting to a place where Laurie said, you, you can say, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. um, the swimming thing, it happened when I was in second grade. Um, it wasn't really talked about very much um, after that. And didn't really think about it very much after that, but it took me a long time to be able to swim in a pool where I couldn't stand. And I just you know, figured that was just part of it. I didn't really pay much attention to it. Could go on water, could go on a boat on the ocean, could go on boats and rivers and lakes. It didn't bother me. It was just in the deep water in a swimming pool, right? Because that's where the actual event happened. <coughs> Excuse me. Until I had children. And then all of a sudden, we're, I'll never forget it, we're at my, my in-laws um, have a pool in their neighborhood, and we were there one time, and neither Tyler and um, my two oldest could swim. And, um, and so we're in the pool, and so now Daddy is becoming swim instructor because I can't, I'm, I'm so stressed out about these two children drowning in the pool that I can't swim, I can't do anything, mm. I'm like hypervigilant, I'm following them around, I'm like, okay, I'm going to hold you here and then you're just going like, to kick off my hands and swim to the wall. It's like two feet, you can do this. And they eventually told their mother, please keep daddy away from us, he's ruining the summer <laughs> in the pool. Okay. And so that's when it, it hit me that this thing that happened to me when I was seven years old was now really negatively impacting my ability to, to have fun with my children in the summertime 30 years later. Right. You got stuck in that moment. I was stuck. And so I had to, we had to talk about that. We had to process that. We had to figure that out um, and, and make sense of it. Uh, so much so now that, um, you know, I don't know if I'm, um, or maybe I'm vigilant, no longer hypervigilant, mm -hmm. and I'm able to have fun with the children in the pool. To me, this is, um, and for the sake of it being 75th anniversary of D-Day, that we have soldiers that come back with PTSD, and it can be the most benign situation at home, um, middle of the night, but the wife starts coughing in bed next, or the husband coughs, whether the soldier was a male or female, but the, the, the person that has PTSD is going to awaken with the rapid heart rate and the blood pressure mm. feeling and experiencing as though they're in the same situation and they get stuck and are unable to realize that's just my wife or that's just my husband. I'm in my house. I'm safe. I'm in my bed. They are very physically, emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally stuck in that place where they were in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever that place was, wherever that traumatic event was. And so to talk about it helps to bring sense to it as well as process, like you were saying, with the intention of I'm processing this so that I don't continue to get stuck in this place 
and I can move on and I can grow from it. So those, those memories that you're describing and your near drowning experience memories and your tar bubble popping memories are explicit memories. Yes. And so I think as I'm looking at my cheat sheet over here, that the remember to remember strategy is about trying to integrate the implicit with the explicit. The, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. The remember to remember is just talking about your day for the most part. It's it's, it's as the parent, you're being um, quizzical and you're asking and curious of how was your day? What was your best part? What was your worst part? What could you do over again if you could? What was the funniest part? In the sense of encouraging your kids to remember, remember. Right. Right. So that it becomes a story and a narrative to them. Yeah. So it's 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 an integrated part of your your current experience. Um, so right. like uh, through, um, you know, through rewind, rewind and, and remember through the remote control of the mind, you help them kind of resolve uh, or, or come to peace with or terms, whatever you want to say, those maybe traumatic experiences. And it's important not to dismiss them. But remember to remember they're a part of who you are and they're a part of who you have become. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Right? That's a beautiful of, way to well, say that. Well, and in, I, I'm going to give you credit because it's, uh, you know, for several, several, uh, I don't know, weeks, months, whatever it is. Um, and I'm probably overstating it, but you, you have asked that we do a, a show at some point on um, honoring, uh, honoring the trauma uh, kind of a thing. Right. And that's kind of what this is a little bit, right? Yes. It's not honoring, like, you know, bowing down and worshiping the trauma, not that, but like giving it its rightful place in yes. your history and, and, and the establishment of who you have become as a person. Yeah. You yeah. give me goosebumps. Yeah. Wow. An actual genuine moment, folks. I'm, I'm adding that to my signature line. Sean Wilson, <laughs> goosebump maker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting you're talking about the, talking about the day. So the example he's in here was, um, Good thing, bad thing, something kind you did for, for somebody else is one of the examples. Yeah. So we actually did that last night. And we don't do it every night, but we did probably like one, maybe once a week, maybe once every other week, I'll ask them. And, and everybody around, around the table can tell me a good thing that happened. Everybody can really tell me, you know, can I tell you two things in the bad thing that happened? <laughs> Those um, are easy, right? Yeah, it's usually somebody took my toy. But when asking them something nice they did for something, somebody else, everybody just kind of like, mm, I've got to think about that. <laughs> and they know it's coming. <laughs> Wow. It is, it is hard to think about a nice thing you did for somebody else uh, during the day. But we, we do that, um, you know, kind of make sense of the day that way. Um, I'm trying to think, was bedtime any easy? Yeah, you know, we did that last night, and we didn't have anybody up, get up and through the night. Tell me, tell me again what it, the exercise was. It was it, so we go around the table and we say, tell me one good thing that yeah. happened to you today. Yeah. Like or that. one good thing about your day. And then we'll do the lap, and Kayla and I are included in this, and then we'll do um, – one bad thing about your day and then tell me something kind you did for somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and so, cause we really want to recognize that good things happen. We want to recognize that bad things happen and we want to recognize that you need to be kind. Uh, cause those are, cause, cause when you have six children who um, all have their, their personalities, wanting them to be kind to each other <laughs> is something that we really value at the I'm, house. I am totally going to steal that. So I do this thing with my five-year-old. I started probably about four or five months ago. Um, we had a bedtime ritual and routine for forever where I would read to her. And after a while, that kind of fell out of favor. Uh, I don't know. She still enjoys to be read to, but maybe just not right at bedtime. And, and I found that reading to her didn't necessarily promote sleepfulness for mm. whatever reason. 
but because I don't get to spend much time with her during the week, uh, because I'm at work, um, now we have conversation time yeah. and, and it's a real crowd pleaser <laughs> between she and I, is that a crowd too? <laughs> The point I'm trying to ramble to is I'm totally going to steal that. And that's going to be like items for discussion and conversation time. Yeah. What good thing did you do? What good thing happened to you? What, what is something that, you know, maybe we would do differently next time or something like that. That's, Absolutely. that's a fantastic and for the little idea. ones. It was, what was your rainbow of the day and what was your thunderstorm? Oh, you know, you that. can make it fun. And, yeah. and how did you, Relatable. how did you water all the flowers? You know, how did you contribute? Yeah. What did you do? I love How that. did you shine today? How did you shine today? I like that. I don't that get good spots, but if I did, <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had that gene removed. You use all your goosebump power into making them. I want to be mindful of the time, but I want to, um, something that we just kind of skimmed over, but I think to, to me, it's just brilliant. And it's on page 73 to 76. And it's the dialogue between Tina Bryson and her son um, about the swimming lessons and how he ends it. Um, she just the cliff notes is that she's telling him about these butterflies in his belly. And she asks him empoweringly, how can we get rid of the, the butterflies? And hence the title of the book. But he says, well, we can kill the butterflies. And she um, her response is something along the lines of, OK, I love that. Can we come up with something a little less violent? How about free the butterflies or liberate the butterflies? And he says, um, nope, I kind of like kill. And she says, OK kill it is. And I just really love the value in that because I think to sit and accept our kids' responses and our kids' ownership when it feels uncomfortable to us is really difficult to do. So as has become our tradition near the end of these episodes, I'm going to lob a grenade right into the middle of the table. (laughs) (laughs) That sparks up conversation. I've been waiting for it for five minutes. Had her child been a foster child, in foster care, or a child. engaged in a conversation with a foster parent and said to her foster parent, to their foster parent, let's go with kill. That would have sparked incident reports. That would have sparked crisis situations because this child now has this homicidal tendency towards fluttery creatures, right? Like time and time again, sorry, this is my personal rant for the day, but time and time again, we take things out of context that our kids say and, and just in foster care because we're so concerned about compliance and so concerned about covering our own selves in these situations that, that we just like take these things and run with them. And there's certainly time for that. I don't want to make this sound like there isn't, but how beautiful that she said, okay, right? Like That's right. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Because that's what he needed to make sense of it. That's right. And so did they really kill actual butterflies? Were any butterflies harmed in the making of that dialogue? Stay tuned for next week's episode where we find out. <laughs> where we call Tina Bryson and ask them how many, butterf- how many, ask how many butterflies she's killed. <laughs> okay, well. My, my last point that I wanted to make, um, if you can get to the very last part of chapter four, where they give you some notes on, on how you, to apply this for us as adults and as parents. And if you listened or were able to tune into the last podcast, I had referenced this. So I just want to come full circle um, and bring it back up. This, um, in my book, it's page 90 and 91, and it's integrating ourselves, moving our own memories from implicit to explicit. And I love the charge that it puts on us as parents to be mindful um, and to be asking when we're engaging in a child, this was my favorite tool, asking ourselves, is my response here making sense? 
and to be mindful of. Had I gone, oh my gosh, kill the butterflies? No, not being, I'm, I'm not being, um, it's not making sense to the child of why my response would be so big. It would make sense to me of, oh, I'm worried about compliance. But then if I even peel back the layers of that, I'd realize none of that really makes any sense. Right. Then I'm worried about compliance when this child is just trying to take ownership over his own butterflies. And if he wants to kill them, that means that he's going to be less nervous next time we go to swimming lessons and to make sense of it. And then I'll leave it at the last, um, the last sentence in that chapter is making sense of your own life, which will help you make sense uh, which will help your kids do the same with theirs. And I, I think that there's just such a charge for us to help make sense. Preach. And really, we got to do it on our own. So I, I, love, I love that you brought that up and that how he ends it. So I want to read a sentence from that that I think will be my closing thought. And we are not going to apologize for jumping the gun on our closing thoughts before you ask them. We just, after 10 episodes, figured out that's how this rolls. <laughs> that's coming so next. here's what's going to happen is I'm going to take those words that you just said and rearrange them in such an order <laughs> that you, what you actually say is, I apologize for jumping the gun. <laughs> <laughs> the video is going to be all disjointed, but yeah, the audio is going to be all edit. All the power. Uh, implicit memories can trigger responses from us that cause us to act in ways we don't want to. Old feelings of being left out, abandoned, or put down by others or by our own parents can keep us from being mature, loving, and respectful when we interact with our kids. It's that can keep us from being mature and loving that's terrifying. And yet so true. Yep. It's good stuff. So make sense of it. Somebody should listen to this. Nobody's going to do it for you. Nobody's going to listen to it for you? <laughs> no, nobody's going to make sense of it. I didn't hear what you said. I didn't like how the two of you were having parallel conversations and they just kind of collided. Directly to you. Like at the end of that movie, Suriana, where the whole movie collides at an intersection. Okay, guys. Thanks for listening to uh, this episode. Uh, we hope that you found value in it. Um, we really enjoy putting these together for you. And um, uh, I, I, I think you'll find value. At, at least those who need to hear it will, will find value. Um, don't forget to share. Um, we are trying to grow the show. Uh, we feel like we have a pretty good reach uh, going, but uh, there's there's more folks out there that we feel can benefit from this. And if you agree with us, share it, like it, star it, review it. Um, put it on a T-shirt. Put it on a T-shirt. Put it on or a, a mug. coffee mug. We totally need show mugs. I if, think we do too. If you're somebody who would be interested in drinking your morning cup of Joe out of a Foster Family Matters coffee mug, uh, join our Facebook group and let us know. Or afternoon cup. Um, or if you're just the type of person that thinks this is just flavored water and drinks it all day long, then um, I don't know well, when that get to. This is, yeah. Nonetheless, let me let me refocus. We're trying to close the show out here. Thanks so much. So we're uh, we're one, two, three episodes into our summer book reading here. We've got a couple more to go. Um, we'll have a, a, a more coherent um, number for you probably on the next episode about how many more we'll have of these. And then we'll jump into all f- our fall programming after that. But again, thanks so much for listening. Share it with everybody, especially those you don't like, because we'll change their minds and, uh, and turn them into fantastic, <laughs> wonderful people that you want it in your life. <laughs> and uh, that's it. Well done. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.